thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. our study of the book of Revelation, and we are now starting to look at the first four trumpets. One thing that is going to be apparent as we work our way through these chapters is that we have to constantly beware of applying a literalist meaning to the text, lest we are led into absurdity. Let me read to you the verses that we're going to try and attempt to complete today. We'll see how well we fare. And then I'll have a general comment about our approach. So, beginning with verse 7 of chapter 8, we read, The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, which fell on the earth, and a third of the earth was burnt up, and a third of the trees were burnt up, And all green grass was burnt up. Verse 8. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain, burning with fire, was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the fountains of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died of the water because it was bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet. And a third of the sun was struck. And a third of the moon and a third of the stars. So that a third of their light was darkened. A third of the day was kept from shining. And likewise third of the night. It is obvious to us that this text is very powerful. We hear this text and we almost feel like hunching. I'm just going to find myself a little hole and hide in it. Mountains and stars falling and the sky being broken apart. Very powerful text. On the moral level, from a moral standpoint, it reminds us of our frailty. We're creatures. We live now, and a second later we're gone. But that's not the text, that's not the reading we're going to apply to Revelation, although it's a very fruitful one. We're going to try to understand what the text actually means. 
In that regard, I want to report to you a conversation that happened between two theologians. Very young theologians. Actually, five-year-old theologians. My daughter, Kateri, was sitting next to her uh, very good friend, Tia. And Tia was looking at our aquarium. And she noticed that we only have two fish in there. Two fishes, to be more specific. And so Tia pointed out to Kateri, you only have two fish in there. And Kateri said, yes. Why? Because the other one died. What did you do with them? asked Tia. Well, we threw them away. What do you think? And then Kateri switched into theology mode. You know, you know all, heaven is only for humans. It's not for animals. Animals don't go to heaven. So Tia said nothing for a little while. And Kateri thought that she should expand on that. And so she said, you know, there's only one animal in heaven. It's a bird. It's the Holy Spirit. So Tia thought about it for a second. She said, you're right. I've always seen it like, I've always, I've always seen the Holy Spirit like a bird. And then Tia decided to build upon the foundation that her friend, Kateri, had laid for her. So she proceeded to state that in heaven there are only birds. That's what we do. In this particular instance, we think it's cute and it's funny. But when grown-ups do the same thing, it's not as cute and as funny. But that's what we do with this text. Notice what these two little girls did. First, my daughter applied a literalist interpretation to a picture of the Holy Spirit. She decided that the symbolic representation of the Holy Spirit as a dove is actually material. It is a physical representation of the reality of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a pigeon. Her friend thought about it for a second and concluded that, yes, her eyes have shown her the Holy Spirit as a pigeon and nothing else. Therefore, she concluded, the Holy Spirit is a pigeon. And then she proceeded to add, somewhat illogically, that... In heaven, there are only birds. What she really meant to say was that the only animals in heaven are birds. But what came out was, in heaven, there are only birds. This is the sort of interpretation you're going to be faced over and over again when someone is not taking care to make sure that the particular word or expression or meaning is not a metaphor or an image that the ancient used to mean something else. We've seen this before. I'm repeating it now. I can constantly repeat it because in the case of the book of Revelation, there is a very powerful pull. The drag is so powerful to make us, to bend our mind into a purely materialistic understanding of the text because of the late-day planet Earth, because of all the interpretation you will find in different Protestant churches, which are based on the notion that the book is about the Chinese and the Russians attacking Israel and all that beautiful stuff. How do we pull away from that? Again, a couple of rules that we have to follow. First, we stick to the mind of the church. What does it mean to stick to the mind of the church? Unfortunately, the Catholic Church does not have an official interpretation of the book of Revelation. If such thing existed... 
it make my life really easy. Actually, it make my life so easy, you would not need me. You just read the document. But it doesn't exist. There's no such thing. So, we follow a set of principles that are going to help us remain faithful to the church. Number one, the four senses of Scripture. Number two, we have to understand the text in light of all of Scripture and the tradition and the teachings of the church. What does that mean? It means that we're not going to come up with something that contradicts Catholic teaching in matters of theology or morality. So that's on the negative side. The positive side is that whatever, whatever explanation we come up with does not have to be the only explanation or the all-encompassing explanation. No such thing exists because Scripture, after all, is the face of Christ. And who can exhaust Christ? All that it has to do is lead us to peace and charity and a greater love of God. And if it is doing that, God and His church, if, if, we're, if it's doing that, we're doing our job. You understand? Now, having said all that, let's dive into this text. What we're going to do, last time we took an overview of all of the trumpets. We were, so to speak, at kite level. Now we're going to drop down to sea level and focus on the first four trumpets. But then we're going to go back up and try to make sense of everything we're going to see. Because it is, in a sense, easy for me to throw at you a whole series of explanations of every word. That's relatively easy to do. What is more important is to understand why those words were there and how does it relate to the entire book. And so far, our silver lining, our guide has been the liturgy. And I will argue that this is a very fruitful guide, as you will see while, when we progress further into the trumpets and even further down when we hit the bowls of wrath and then the coming down of the bride. So if you have scripture with you, please follow me on chapter 8, verse 7. And I'm using the Revised Standard Version, Catholic Edition. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, which fell on the earth, and a third of the earth was burnt up, and a third of the trees were burnt up, and all green grass was burnt up. So in the first trumpet, we see the impact of the trumpet being that the trees and the grass and the earth are being affected. Let's not worry right now about what it means. Let's just focus on what is being hit. Fire and hail mixed with blood came down and earth and trees and grass were hit. Never mind the one-third for now. The next trumpet is blown and what do we see? Something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. Now the sea was not touched by the first trumpet, it is touched by the second. And as a result of this, one-third of the living creatures in the sea died, one-third of the ships were destroyed, one-third of the sea turned, for, turned to blood. Never mind the one-thirds and never mind how it turns to blood. Just understand the progression. First, you had hail and fire mixed with blood. Then you have a big mountain. So definitely there is a progression. The progression continues in the third trumpet. We move from a mountain to a star. 
a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and, a th- on, and on the fountains of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died of the water because it was made bitter. So, the first trumpet hits the crops, hits the areas that are required for sheep and cattle to live. The second hits what's in the water, in the sea. Both of them, therefore, are crippling the ability of man to eat. The third one hits sources of water that are required for man to drink. Food and water are being hit right now. Do you see that? The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of our light was darkened, a third of the day was kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. The fourth trumpet has nothing to do with the sea, or with sources of uh, drinkable water, or with the sea. It has to do with the cosmos. At the, at the end of the first four trumpets, what is the overall picture? What can we say? is being hit right now. It is nature and the cosmos. So far, man has not been hit directly, only indirectly. You're with me so far? In order, therefore, to understand what is the purpose of these four trumpets, we have to, first of all, understand the use of trumpets in Scripture. And that's the first thing we need to do. The second thing we need to do is realize that those four woes, four curses, four plagues are connected, are related to the plagues of Egypt. Okay? And then from those two strands, we're going to be able to draw a number of conclusions that are going to help us to understand what is the meaning of those four trumpets. It will become... A lot clearer by the time we're done. But as a general remark, notice what is going on. The trees, the grass, the earth. Then, the sea and the rivers, water. Land, water. Then, stars, moon, and sun. This sequence is the reverse of what sequence? Precisely, creation. So what is going on here? De-creation. You get it? It's a process of de-creation, not creation. Let's then look at the trumpets. In the Old Testament, and if you recall our series on symbols and symbolism, we've gone through the trumpets in full detail, I'm just going to quickly refresh your memory and go over certain details here. In the Old Trumpets, in the Old Testament, trumpets predominantly indicate a warning to repent, judgment, victory or salvation, enthronement of Israel's king, eschatological, eschatological means the last things, the end times, or salvation or the gathering of God's people. So, Those are the ways trumpets are used. Let me repeat them again. I went through this list pretty quickly. Warning to repent. 
A trumpet is used to call people to repentance. Judgment. The judgment of God. So for instance, in Exodus, when they were gathered around the mountain and God was coming down to talk to them, trumpets were heard on the mountain. Not being um, blown by man, not being handled by man, but really handled by God. Victory. Where, where can you think of trumpets being used for victory? Jericho. Think of Jericho. We're going to come back to Jericho. plays a big role here, and it's going to help us understand what is going on. Victory and um, enthronement of Israel's king, judgment, salvation, gathering of God's people. So now think about all those elements I just listed to you and think in terms of the book of Revelation. See how each one of those apply. Judgment. Obviously, we started with what? After Christ came, I mean, Christ came down and walking among the, the churches and he pronounces those seven covenantal lawsuits. Judgment. Then we go back to what room? The room of the throne from which judgment is coming. So judgment is all over the place. All right? Victory. We saw the 144,000 who were sealed. We saw the multitude being present before God and singing a new song. We're going to see them again as an army a little bit later. Enthronement of Israel's king. Pretty obvious. The lamb that comes and takes the seal from the hand of the father. Right? Enthronement of Israel's king. Eschatological judgment. Salvation, gathering of God's people. All those elements are being present, are present in the book of Revelation. Therefore, in a sense, had we read all the way to, till here, we would expect trumpets to, 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 to be heard. Because all those elements are typically preceded by the blast of trumpets. Another important aspect is that trumpets announced an alarm that holy battle was to be engaged against Israel's enemy or against Israel, depending on the faithfulness of Israel. So trumpets effectively signal the application of the covenantal curses. And um, I have a set of references for you. I'll give them slowly. You'll find... the. Th this use of trumpets in the book of Judges, chapter 7, verse 16 through 22. In Jeremiah, chapter 4, verse 5 through 21. Chapter 42, verse 14. Chapter 51, verse 27. In Ezekiel, chapter 7, verse 14. In Hosea, chapter 8, verse 1. In Joel, chapter 2, verse 1. And in Zephaniah, chapter 1, verse 16. There are two numerous for me to go through. We'll be here all night. But that gives you an indication that all across the prophets, all across the prophetic messages, trumpets have consistently been used this way. So if you have this baggage with you, if you know what a trumpet means what it represents, as soon as you hit this text, you have a very different approach. 
you won't make the mistake that my daughter did in thinking that a trumpet simply represents a musical instrument. Right? There is a lot more behind a trumpet than meets the eye for us because we don't, ha- we don't have that culture. The fall of Jericho. Everybody, everybody knows about the fall of Jericho or should I recap the story? Yay, nay. Jer- so Joshua is leading Israel into the promised land. And the first thing, the first city that they have to, to conquer is Jericho. And Jericho is the stronghold of the promised land. So instead of them going after small villages and sort of building their forces, God says, no, you're going to go straight to Jericho and that's the city you're going to attack. Jericho, at the time, had walls wide enough to allow two chariots, two chariots to be driven on the wall side by side. That's how thick those walls were. And God tells them, this is how you're going to attack Jericho. Priests will carry the Ark of the Covenant, and, other, and seven priests will walk behind them, and every day you're going to go around the city with the army behind you, and you're going to blow the trumpet for seven days. So I hope by now that as soon as I say seven, you know what seven means, right? I don't have to go, you know, repeating this again. Seven is the number of the covenant, right? And on the seventh day, you're going to go around the city seventh time, seven times. And on the seventh time, everyone will shout a great shout. Now, if you are preparing for warfare, you are a man ready for battle. What do you do? You take your, uh, your sword, your bow, you take your arrows, your helmet, you're ready. And then Joshua, your leader, comes over and says, Folks, here's the, here's the plan. This is how we're going to attack that city. We're going to stroll around it first day, and we're going to blow trumpets. And we're going to do it six times. On the seventh day, we're going to do it seven times. And then the city's ours. Think about that for a second. It would sort of be like me telling Catholics, folks, you want an end of abortion? You want an end of contraception? Here's what we're going to do it. For seven weeks, all of you are going to abstain and fast. For seven weeks, you're going to be on your knees praying to God. And you're going to do processions with the Blessed Sacrament outside on every, in every church across the country. And on the seventh week, we're going to do procession every day. And on the Sunday, we're going to do it seven times. And then, on the last procession, we're going to shout a great shout. And it's going to come to an end. What would you think of me? I mean, generally speaking, what do you think people will think of me saying something like that? He's crazy. Right? Now, Take that back to Joshua's time. No different. People are people. You understand? This is not how you conduct battle in old times. You don't walk around the city blasting trumpets. You make a trench 
you sit down, you make sure nobody gets in, gets out, you wait for them to die of hunger, then you attack. You throw fire, you throw stuff at them. That's how you attack a city. You do th- something. Going around blasting a trumpet? What a weird way. Okay, why is it, why did God do it this way? Because God is teaching them, teaching Israel, you are not a nation like other nations. You are a priestly nation. And if you are a priestly nation, you're going to conquer other nations by means of sacrifice and liturgy. That's how you rule. So those men walking behind these priests every day and the folks in Jericho standing on the walls and looking at them, they must have been having a good laugh. Look at them. They're blasting the trumpet. This is like they're taking a stroll around the city. Isn't that funny? So the embarrassment, the humiliation, the suffering that comes from them having to do something counter to their ego, counter to their pride, is what gave Israel victory. That's what is implied in Jericho. The first six days prepare for the seventh. Sort of like the first six trumpets here are really preparing for the seventh. And all of that is built into what? Into a liturgy. Into the liturgy. So that's why the liturgy is so important. This is all a reminder for us about how we ought to live the liturgy. And we are not living it this way. We're living it like wimps. We don't believe in the power of the liturgy. When we do a procession out there, most people stand on the side and talk. They don't understand what a procession is for. They don't do it like warriors. They're not fighting. You know, so we walk around, we sing some songs, some hymns, and most people trailing behind us have no clue what's going on. Just, you know, that's it. And, I mean, thank God, Father Nabil does processions. How many of you Latin and right folks have been in procession? How often? How many have been in more than 10 processions? No, 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 no. Not Eastern rites. Latin rites. Okay. You understand why we're in trouble. All right? You understand? We don't believe in the liturgy. We do not believe. We think the liturgy is nothing more than us coming to Papa Jesus and Him patting us on the shoulder saying, Good boy, good boy. That's it. Let's go to the liturgy and feel, you know, we're going to feel good. It's great to feel good. I mean, God wants us to, to, He wants to console us. And yes, He's tender and He's loving and He's merciful. He's all those things. And more. Way more. After all, He instituted the Sunday of Divine Mercy. There's a really good reason for it. But that's, but He's expecting something else than a bunch of slobs getting into His church, sitting and talking, and then thinking the church is like a theater, and getting up and leaving and having no clue what's going on. He's expecting us to be Warriors. He's expecting us to understand the spiritual battle we're in and to ask with certainty that we're going to receive. That's what he's expecting, like any good father and mother would. I mean, imagine your mom and dad 
And then the kid comes home, and he's just a slob. He, he, you know, he throws himself on the couch, can't sit properly, and cannot conduct proper conversation with you, other than, you know what I mean, I think, and you know what I mean, and I think, and cool. That's about it. I mean, are you proud? I mean, yes, you're happy the kid is home. Because God knows where the kid would be otherwise. But are you proud parents? Okay. Likewise. Likewise. That's what he's teaching us through this book. What it means to be children of God. In the liturgy. And how we can conquer the world. If you understand what I'm saying to you right now. You would be thinking... Lord, I cannot wait to see what you're going to do in the third millennium. Because mark my word, and I'm not speaking as a prophet, I'm speaking as a logician. The third millennium is Catholic, or it is not. Do you hear what I'm saying to you? It is Catholic, or it is not. It is the triumph of the church that we're going to see. That's why the Catholic Church can't go away. We got the truth, and we have the truth, we have the energy. We have the joy, we have the power. We will change the world. But we've been sidetracked for about a hundred years. It's time to wake up and smell the hummus. Okay, where was I? How did I get the hummus? <laughs> Fine. We talked about the trumpets and Jericho. Jericho. I'm sure they ate hummus back then. All right. <clears throat> so I told you that the, the, the first important thing we're, we're noticing here is that with the trumpets, we moved away, I didn't tell you that, but I'm reminding you, we moved away from warnings that we saw with the seals into actual judgment. The second important idea with Jericho is that the, sixth first, the six first trumpets are actually preparing for the seventh, the major one, the big one. The third idea is the importance of the liturgy. Everything is in a liturgical context. As soon as I say liturgical context, you understand that you can't take those words that we're reading in a literal fashion. Something else is at work here. We're going to try to understand what it is. Now, if you look at the Feast of Trumpets, which we've covered in a series on the Jewish, the, 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 the Feast of the Jewish Temple. The Feast of Trumpets according to Philo, was based on Exodus 19.16, where the trumpet was blown because it is an instrument used in war for engaging battle and also for recalling the troops to their respective camps. The feast expressed thanks to God, the peacemaker, who first destroys faction before, both in cities and in various parts of the universe. He adds that the trumpets, both in Exodus and, the, and in the feast, were direct directed partly to Israel and partly to the nations. So the trumpets in Exodus were not just for Israel, they're also for the nations. Here we definitely see it being for all nations because it's hitting the earth in a universal fashion. In the book of Ezra, chapter 3, verse 1 through 6, we read that it was during the Feast of Trumpets that the temple was rebuilt. So, the Feast of Trumpets was a very important feast. The Feast of Trumpets happened on the New Year, which was also called as Yom el-Din, 
meaning the day of judgment. And the ten days that followed that feast were called the days of awe by the Jews. And they believed that during those ten days, God opened the books and determined who would actually go to heaven during those, two, those ten days. Now this is not revealed truth. This is the Jewish understanding of the meaning of this feast. But it shed light on what trumpets meant for people back then. So here we see seven angels coming out with trumpets. Just as there were priests in the temple coming out with trumpets. So it situates liturgically the activity of the trumpets around the new year. Now, haven't we just, didn't we say a little bit earlier that we saw an act of decreation? The old is going, going out. Guess what? The old year is going out. The new year is beginning. The old covenant is going out. The new covenant is beginning. It is the enthronement of the king. It is the revelation of the king and of his pride. All that is implicitly implied by those trumpets. Because then a trumpet is judgment, it is enthronement, it's a feast, specifically it's a feast of trumpet, which is the New Year's. It is also Jericho, it's the liturgy. All that is implied when they say trumpet. In the New Testament, the trumpet is sounded to indicate the coming of Christ and the gathering together of the of his people. Listen to this language and you will find that it is apocalyptic. It's taken from Matthew chapter 24, verse 30 and 31. It is very similar to the language we see here. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Likewise, in 1 Tess 4.16, in the first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 4, verse 16, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. Why is it that St. Paul mentions a trumpet? Why is it that Jesus mentions a trumpet? Simply because they like trumpets? No, because trumpet is this key word that carries so much meaning with it. From the liturgy, from Jericho, from the from uh, the Temple of Jerusalem, that is why. So, overall, the trump, the the, the 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 movement from the seas of the trumpet signals that now God is going to judge the world. Now there is a king being enthroned. Now there's a new covenant that is going to begin. Now, effectively, the victory that was promised with the seals is going to take place. Make sense? Very good. Let's now turn around and look at the plagues. I mentioned to you that there is a very close correspondence between these trumpets, the effect of the trumpets and the plagues. I'll give you specific the specifics right now. The first trumpet which deals with hail and fire mixed with blood and fell on the earth, corresponds to Exodus chapter 9, verse 22 through 25. 
I will be going in detail into this text later. I'm just giving you the headlines right now. Chapter 9, verse 22 through 25. The second trumpet corresponds, which deals with the sea, corresponds to Exodus chapter 7, verse 20 through 25. The third corresponds to Exodus chapter 10, verse 21 through 23. And the fourth to Exodus chapter 10, verse 12 through 15. So you'll see that the order, right away, the order of the trumpets does not match the order of the plagues. Because the first one is on chapter 9, the second in chapter 7, and the, the last two are in chapter 10, but the third is in 21 to 23, and the fourth is 12 to 15. So the order is not matching. But what is important is the meaning behind each of those plagues that God unleashed on the Egyptians. I'm talking about the ten plagues of Egypt. Everybody's familiar with the ten plagues of Egypt? Broadly speaking, what were the intentions of those plagues? What was God wanting to do with the plagues? The first thing is to harden Pharaoh's heart. The second is to demonstrate God's omnipotence. God is all-powerful. The third, the plagues are a judgment executed against the Egyptians for the persecution of Israel. The plagues punished Egypt economically. If you recall, crops, beasts, water were all hit by the plagues. Economically, Egypt was hit. Religiously, Egypt was hit. Why? Because each of those plagues was actually an attack against a specific God. So, when Moses placed, he, I think, instructed Aaron to put his rod into the Nile, what happens to the Nile? It turns to blood. Metaphorically, meaning what? Because to the Egyptians, the Nile was a God. So when you did that and blood is coming out, what did you do to that God? You slew him. You killed him, right? Um, the, the, the destruction of the crops and, 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 and uh, especially the death of, uh, say, the bull was an attack against the god Apis, the god of fertility. The, dark, the darkening of the days and night, remember the ninth plague, when God turned everything to darkness? That's an attack against the god Ra the sun god, of which Pharaoh was supposed to be the incarnation. So religiously, religiously, let me repeat that to you, Egypt was being attacked. Get my drift? There is no way a Catholic is going to stand here and say, well, you know what, we don't have to help others convert. All religions are equal. Yeah, there are different ways to get to God. Okay. The Egyptians back then would disagree. Because the plagues were a direct attack against the religious beliefs of the Egyptians. Think about that. So effectively, the plagues were an attack against idolatry. All those, all the, the system of the Egyptian belief and all the ways of their of, of the ways that they chose to live by were effectively a form of idolatry. They adored the creature instead of the creator. And that was being attacked. And the ultimate purpose is to glorify God. 
Now Josephus, in his Antiquity of the Jews, states that the plagues were seen as a warning to all of humankind, and when they offend God as Egypt did, they will be punished in the same way. The same can be seen in the book of the prophet Amos, chapter 4. At the same time though, and that's important for us because this is what is going to distinguish the trumpets from the bowls of wrath. The plagues allowed some to convert. So we had not yet reached the point where no one could convert anymore. Meaning God has not withdrawn His graces to such a point, to such a degree, that everybody's heart was hardened from those who did not convert. Because some of the Egyptians converted. We know that by reading Exodus chapter 12, verse 38, when we read that as the Jews were leaving Israel, a mixed multitude also went with them. And this mixed multitude were non-Israelites, so Egyptians. And the only reason why they would go with them is specifically because after seeing the wonders of God, they converted. So conversion was still open. When we hit the, the bowls of wrath, it's closed. So you will see in some commentators, in some commentaries about the book of Revelation, they'll tell you that essentially the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls of wrath are the same thing. John is just repeating himself in a sort of a louder and louder fashion. Kind of, do you hear me? Do you hear me? Do you hear me? Sort of thing. I don't buy that. Yes, there is repetition in one sense, but there is a fundamental shift every time we move deeper. Why? Because God is a father. As a father, he disciplines his kid. The first thing is, it's a warning. Right? Stop or else. The second is, no more warning. Punishment takes place. And if that punishment doesn't take place, and if this is a good father, the third time around, the kid will remember it for the rest of his life. Right? So, there is, God is teaching his church how to behave. The plagues, the trumpets, are primarily directed to the church. It is something that the church watches and something that the church sees, and because of that, the church repents. You know how it is when uh, a couple is quarreling and suddenly they heard that a neighbor had a terrible thing happen to, to them? They stop quarreling because they re- realize how fragile they are. That sort of thing, that sort of psychology is at works here because now God has told them in the letters, shape up or else. In the seals, he gave a warning shot and a trumpets. He's acting. And this action, all those things I told you about, hit those who are in the church and are unbelievers, just as it hits those who are outside of the church and are unbelievers. So effectively, in the trumpets, God is restraining His wrath for purpose of repentance. He restrains His wrath for purpose of repentance. But when we look at it, the flip side of this is that the, the, the trumpet, the, the plagues in Egypt hardened the hearts of Egyptians. 
right? They became more and more entrenched into their rejection of God, therefore preparing them for judgment. So it, the, the actions of God, when He sends, when He judges the world, when He sends woes our way, make the saint a greater saint and a sinner a greater sinner. No one remains indifferent. You either move forward or you move backward. Sort of like when you have a killing that we just had right now, you have two proper reactions. One is to fall on your knees and say, Lord, we have sinned. Forgive our sins. And the other is to raise your, your um, fist and say, why? Why do you allow this to happen? And if we're not preparing ourselves regularly, we're going to be able to fall on our knees. Because rebellion is part of our fallen nature. Remember from our parents? They rebelled. It's implanted in us. And unless we work against it regularly, we're not going to be able to do it when it hits. And that's how God separates the goat from the sheep. So right now, we've seen three major aspects. The first one is that we have a decreation that is taking place in preparation for a new creation. The second, we've seen the importance of the trumpets in the Old Testament, their background, what they mean, the relationship to Jericho and to the temple. And the third, overall, the relationship with the plagues, which we're going to um, explain more in detail. And we understand, therefore, that what is going on right now is a partial judgment that, that still allows for repentance. The reason why we say it's partial is precisely because of the one-third. The whole purpose of one-third is not to make us think mathematically, mathematically about exactly one-third. 0.3333333, etc., etc., right? Not at all. One-third means only partially. You can substitute one-third with part of. It would pretty much mean the same thing. Okay? There are a couple, there's one more element that I'd like to stop and, 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 and look at before we get into the trumpets. And that is the blood. In all four trumpets, we've seen in the first trumpet that hail and fire mixed with blood. In the second trumpet, a great mountain burning with fire is thrown down. And then a third of the sea became blood. In the third, we ha we, there is no blood. And there is no blood in the fourth. So you have blood in the first and the second. In the first, we have blood that is falling from heaven. Where is that blood coming from? Whose blood is it? We find the answer to this question in two places. First, in the book of Revelation, if you recall from the fifth seal, we saw the martyrs under the altar. And they're under the altar because this is usually where the blood collects. Right? They've spilled their blood as a testimony to Christ. And then 
we go to Matthew chapter 24, verse 30 through 31, and we hear the Lord saying, Then will appear, no, not Matthew, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 11, verse 49 and following. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it shall be required of this generation. And he meant his generation, the people living during his time. And a generation, Guinea is 40 years. 40 years. 33 AD, fast forward to 73 AD, Jerusalem has been utterly destroyed. The blood has been required. That's the blood. So now think about it for a second. If you really think about it, you will see that the world, the world has no chance of winning whatsoever. So, option number one, the world lets the church flourish. And the world lets the church send missionaries. And as a result, the world is converted. And the world is not the world anymore. It's become the church. So it doesn't win, right? Look at it from somebody who doesn't want to be in the church, who refuses the church, wants nothing with the church. The two options. Option number one, let the church be. Sure, let them grow, do whatever they want. The end result is your base is shrinking. Because they're doing what they're supposed to do. They're converting your kin. Right? So, option number two. I'm not going to let them do what they want to do. I'm going to oppose them. In fact, I'm going to use force. I'm going to kill them. The result is now I'm sending more of those martyrs under that altar. And they're saying the same prayer. How long, O Lord, before... You avenge our blood. And as a result, the covenantal curses are triggered against the world, and the world loses. You see why the church is going to be here forever? I mean, logically speaking, do you see it? There's there's no choice out there. The the battle is won. It's over. The world is ours. We own it. You realize that? We own it. We just have to take possession of it. Just as God gave Israel the promised land. They owned it. I don't care what people think in terms of human justice. Because none of us as human really own anything on earth. It's not ours. Kind of reminds me of, these, of the story of these scientists who went to God and said, God, he said, yes, uh, we don't need you anymore. We can create life all by ourselves. Really. I mean, I've told you this. I don't remember. And uh, the Lord said, really? Yeah, yeah. Well, show me. Very easy, Lord. When I take a little bit of dirt, he said, hold it. I got a pattern on this dirt. Get your own. Right? We don't own it. St. Augustine, what have you got that was not given to you? Right? God gave them that land before they actually practically took possession of it. He said, this is yours. So it was. But then they had to go in and take it. 
So it is with us. He's saying, basically, the earth is yours. So it is. We just have to go and take it. How? The Mass. By living a moral life. By being faithful to the church. By loving the church. By suffering. By persevering. We overtake the world. That's how. So that's where the blood is coming from. Very good. Now, I'd hate to uh, get into the first trumpet right now and then stop. So I'm going to stop right now and open up for questions regarding this text. Yes. Um, The question is, I said that the earth is for us, for taking. And what does it have to do with the blood? When God instructed the Jews to get into the promised land, He showed them how they were to conquer it. So, He told them, I give you this land. It's yours. So it was. Because what God says is, the land is theirs. But, practically speaking, He expects them to take it. Sort of like when you... Your son has graduated, your daughter has graduated, and you bought them their first car. All right? You bought them their first car. You bought them a, uh, a, uh, a bug. All right? The old one. Circa 1968. All right? And you tell them, it's your car. Here are the keys. It's yours. Now, what do I have to do? They have learned how to drive, right? <laughs> My good friend Rich is saying they insure us and take it, right? All the details, they have to deal with it. They have to assume that ownership, don't they? Would you expect anything, anything less from them? No. Why? Why would you not say, this is your car, it's yours, I'm going to chauffeur you around. Anytime you want to go someplace, I'll drive you there. Why wouldn't you do it as a parent? And, and don't think about the cynical answers you might have right now. Just think in terms of a good parent. Why would you not do that? Why would you not drive your daughter everywhere? Never grow up. Responsibility. Speak up. Speak up. Independent. Free will. You want her to learn. But why do you want... Her to learn and to become independent, and you won't respond. Well, why do you want all these things? Mature, pardon? So they can be like the parents. Yes, but why? All those things are good things, but they're inter- intermediary things. Because all of those things are going to end when this person dies. The maturity, the responsibility, the independence, the free will, the, all that ends when the person dies. So they're only. Temporary, tempor, temporary goals. They cannot be final goals. What is the final goal? Pardon? Make it into heaven. Eternal life. Yes, but I would contend that there is yet one more goal that is the most important goal. To give glory to God. That's why. It is your, in your heart as a parent, 
you want to give glory to God. And the way you give glory to God is by allowing your kid to shine like the sun. That's what you want. And why do you want that? Because the grace of God planted that desire in your heart. So it is with us. Why is it that Jesus cannot right now, right now, this instant, go abracadabra, and everything is set right in the world? Why? I'll tell you why. It's not that complicated. You know the answer very well. It is the reason why you will not go into your daughter or son's room and pick up his room or her room for them. Because you know, if you were to do that, that 16-year-old slob tomorrow will turn it back in the wreck that it is today. That's what Jesus knows about us. We're slobs. If you were to fix things right now, we'll turn it back into wreck tomorrow. Why? Because we're not growing up. Right? So the only reason why He wants us to do the work and take on the world is so that we can glorify His Father by shining like a sun. Do you understand? That's what He wants from us. And the way He wants it from us is not the way we would want it. We think, okay, let's get on with it. Give me project manager, get PowerPoint up, let's call a meeting, let's draw a plan. How are we going to get the church to expand throughout the world? Doesn't work that way now, does it? Doesn't work that way. Make sense? Yes. The question is, I said that the church will never end. Doesn't that contradict the fact that there will be an end of the world and a judgment to come? There is no contradiction because at the end of the world, the only thing that will end is the church militant. But the church glorious will go on forever. The church will never end. Only the embassy of the church in this world will come to the end because it has, it has served its purpose. It will, absolutely. That's why we say the church, the church will continue on in heaven. The church is in heaven. That's why we say the church is holy because the church substantially is in heaven more so than on earth. Right? Yes. Very good question. Uh, scripture states that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Well, if God really wanted to redeem the, everybody, how come does he harden the heart of Pharaoh? It looks like he's setting him up, doesn't it? It looks like God is kind of a little bit evil. And he says, okay, this one, I don't want him. All right? I'm just going to pour you know, 300 pounds of cement in his heart. So he can never turn around and be saved, right? That's how it sounds like. See, St. <clears throat> Bonaventure explains that very well. But let me put it to you this way. The acts, God's mercy is unfathomable and is without limit. That is a truth of the faith. Yet at the same time, his discreet acts of mercy, the number of times he will show mercy to a sinner who rejects him, those are finite. If they were not finite, if they were infinite, then God would be bound 
to treat Judas the way he treats his mother. Meaning God would go against his justice. Right? That cannot happen. So when someone sins and refuses God's mercy, you would ask me, how, how do you say that about Pharaoh? Think about what Pharaoh did before all these events. Pharaoh decided to kill all the children of the Jews. Pharaoh tried to take their land. So he effectively committed himself to a path that was evil. And that merited him God's judgment. Pharaoh had Moses growing up in his household. Pharaoh had interaction with the Jews. He had plenty of time to repent. He never did. So effectively, the hardening of the heart is judgment. We think that God will wait for all of us to die before He confines us to hell. That is not true. St. Bonaventure says that for some whom He has judged, He will requite their lives and send them to hell. For others, He will let them go on to increase their pain. If God were not to act this way towards sinner, how can then we make sense of the fact that He would let some live for the purpose of increasing their glory? That would seem unjust compared to a baby who's born and six months later die. So we must understand that God's mercy is infinite, but His acts of mercy towards sinner is not. There is a limit. And when the limit is reached, that's it. Because God knows that He gave, in all justice, He gave this man more than what he really deserves. And He refused him. He said no, all the way through. So no, it is. Effectively, it's a respect. The hardening of the heart of Pharaoh is nothing more than God saying, I respect your free will. I respect the choice you made. I will not force myself on you. Yes. Romans chapter 2. Precisely, yeah. Giving, giving somebody over to his wickedness, meaning giving him over to that which he loves. Right? And Pharaoh has chosen to be considered as God. He was God. His son was God. That's why God killed all the firstborn son, because the son of Pharaoh was considered a God. And Pharaoh, he made that decision to go this way. He was, cho- cho- he was shown in a different way, but he refused it. So he effectively... In a sense, by his actions, by his free will, got to, him to, got to a point where he accepted the hardening of heart. There is a Father Amorth, who is an exorcist. He's the head exorcist in Italy. And he said that during his 30 years or 25 years of exorcism, he had, uh, um, he had met, I think, twice men who were possessed and who were aware of the fact that they were possessed and didn't want it to change. They wanted to be possessed. Hard to understand, but that's... And so God leaves them there. Okay? They were possessed by evil spirits. Yes. The question was, they were possessed by whom? By evil spirits. The question is, yes, the question is, who was speaking for the individual? Because usually... In possession, the evil spirit is in control. It is true, yet there are times where the individual himself is self-aware. The possession is never continuous. It, I mean, it's continu- Let me correct myself. The possession is there, but it doesn't manifest itself 
continuously. Right. And so when that man was in his, in his full capacity, he was told, do you know that you're possessed? And he answered, yes, I do. And I want it changed. Any other question? Very well. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.